For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. I'm very happy to have with us as speaker today, Brisha Wade. Uh, not many of you know, remember Brisha from when she was practicing at Ancient Dragon Sengate, both on Irving Park and in Hyde Park. And uh, she was uh, then also at the University of Chicago, where she got her master's uh, in religious studies. Um, so Brisha has recently, well, Brisha now lives in Los Angeles, where she works as a hospice chaplain. Many people in our Sangha have, have trained or are working as chaplains. So it's, her talk is very relevant to us. She's going to be talking about her, based on her new book, which is a totally wonderful book. I'm holding it up. I don't know if you can see it. I assume you can hear me. Um, Yes. Um, anyway, her new book is Grieving While Black, an Anti-Racist Take on Oppression and Sorrow. And it's a very powerful, illuminating book uh, with a lot of her own experiences uh, uh, talking about, uh, well, grieving while black, grieving as a black woman, talking about uh, about grief in, in very subtle ways and, and about racism and and how that affects grief. So, uh, it, again, it's a really wonderful, powerful book. Congratulations, Brisha, on um, such good work. And, uh, Brisha, um, thank you for being here. Please uh, take it away. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Awesome. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Saika, and it's really good to see you. It's been a while. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to start with a, a little bit of my background. Um, I appreciate the introduction, Tygen, um, and sharing a bit about how I got to where I am currently. Um, so for almost five years, I've worked um, in a role discernibly recognized as end-of-life care. So I've been in hospitals um, and hospices and for a variety of reasons, I um, not too long ago ended up transitioning out of that space uh, or those spaces, and I began doing um, mostly consulting and teaching in the evening, working with folks who were neither facing end of life imminently nor directly. Um, and these folks are mostly working on building a a life of meaning, um, and many of them were or are uh, in states of spiritual transition that often feel like um, stuckness um, to, to the people experiencing it. And more often than not, um, they feel paralyzed as a result of anxiety and fear. Um, so for example, you know, they may desire a more fulfilling role or a career shift, but you fear, you know, that have a fear of failure. Um, or they can desire healthier relationship professionally and personally, um, but be afraid of being vulnerable or rejected. And all of this is related to the fear of the unknown. 
Um, and fear of the unknown is directly linked to the reality of impermanence. And anytime we're facing transitions, we're coming into direct contact with impermanence. We're coming into contact with some form of loss, um, which is a, a form of death. Um, it's an ending. And often what we experience at the heels of, of these losses or um, death is grief. And that's why transitions and uncertainty are so complex for us as humans, um, even the happiest transitions, um, because there's always a hint of grief. Um, and I found that when working with people in these contexts, the loss, you know, when the loss isn't concrete, um, or in other words, you know, it's not a feeling tied to a body or a form, like say uh, anticipating a first date or leaving a job you really don't like. Um, these are often positive things, potentially, um, filled with hope and possibility. Um, but wherever there's possibility, there's also the reality and the potential of loss. Um, and the significance of what's happening and the significance of that form of grief related to uncertainty um, can often be difficult for people to interpret. Um, that said, I, I currently work in tech during the day um, at a startup, <laughs> in fact. Uh, so a lot of the consulting and teaching I do, is, it takes place in the evening. And um, my job during the day at, at a startup, much like my work in the evening, seems quite divorced from end-of-life care explicitly, at least on you know at the surface. Um, so I don't know about you, but like, you know, when I think of tech, if I want to come up with some stereotypes without, <laughs> and if I were actively in it, um, yeah, I'm probably imagining tech bros sitting at conference tables, microdosing in front of a whiteboard in Silicon Valley, trying to come up with the next big idea, you know, trying to be the next Google, <laughs> next Amazon. Um, and, you know, of course, you'd be incorrect if you thought that. Not off by much, though. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there, there's definitely um, some, some truth to that. But, um, you know, anyone who has ventured to start their own business or who is familiar with the life cycle of startups, you know, whether you're working um, with them directly or know a friend involved in a startup, you know that startup teams are very familiar with impermanence. Um, Products change, marketing has to adapt, sales cycles fluctuate, funding comes and goes. Uh, everything is uncertain, and that uncertainty is bubbling under a pressure cooker of investor responsibility, co-founders um, with big dreams, and a high risk of failure. Startups are often built on a really high expectation of exponential growth, such that the growing pains, so to speak, and the grief that comes with it um, often feels like waves crashing down before you can really catch your breath and get time to recover, um, to gather your wits about you with everything that's changing. Um, and it makes it very difficult to grieve amidst those transitions and to incorporate that, incorporate that grief in, um, into your being and your experience so that you can um, mindfully face the next challenge that'll inevitably come as you, as you're growing. So all of that's to say, um, I've been involved in end of life care for um, 
longer than my, you know, explicit titles suggest. Um, and likely so of many of you. Um, I hear that many of you are, are chaplains based on Tygen's introduction, but I imagine that for quite some time um, you have been supporting people through their uh, their fear of impermanence and their relationship to loss for much longer than you had your official title or began your official training. And most of you, I bet, are called to bring the attention and awareness that you cultivated from spending time on the mat to whatever organizations, um, people, or pursuits who need you in the midst of their transitions as they struggle to make sense of their experience of impermanence. And this could be an organization figuring out how to um, have more equitable hiring practices. It could be a friend struggling with their relationship to boundaries. Um, whatever it might be, you are there um, supporting others as they move through what they have yet to identify as grief or fear of loss, or ultimately their fear of impermanence. Uh, so today I would like to talk about death um, and not death with big D, um, you know, not the, the one that's top of mind right now as we're moving through this pandemic. Um, I'm going to call this death with a little D and I don't mean to um, imply that the deaths I'm about, about to speak of are any less significant. Um, I mean to imply that they are more common and feel less final um, for most of us as we're as we're moving through them. And I specifically want to talk about the, the death that results from daily transitions as we're constantly shedding our old selves um, to deal with the challenge of who the present calls us to be. As we are called to come face to face with our own relationship with impermanence. And I'm specifically going to talk about um, our own death, you know, um, the death of our ego and how the death of ego and of self are necessary when showing up to do the type of work that we each aspire to do. Um, I imagine that if we if many of you are involved in, you know, explicit end of life care roles or any sort of um, roles for towards justice or, or equity, it's really important um, to you to to show up as your best self to bring about um, the the change that you you hope to see. That's why we're here, and that's hopefully why we practice. Um, so um, I, I want to talk about death um, in terms of bringing about the change you want to see um, to play our role in birthing new possibilities for the future we we hope to live in. So right now, um, I'm sure it hasn't escaped us that we are in the middle of a global pandemic where the world is grieving and where we are grieving. Um, we are meeting each other virtually because we cannot be in person. We cannot um, sit and, and grow in sangha um, physically because of the restrictions um, of the pandemic and because of the threat to our physical being. Um, Yet, you know, we live in a culture where we're taught to prepare for the possibility of any and everything. We're told to get our education, to secure the job, to, to network, to build certain relationships, to save money, to do all of these prescriptive things in preparation for what we can't possibly know or anticipate, all while actively avoiding the reality of what we can be certain of, which is impermanence, um, which is grief and loss. 
Uh, we live in a culture that's constantly driven by the, the promise of what could be in an effort to distract individuals from our own suffering, um, thus disconnecting us from the suffering of others so that we don't have to think about what we ultimately cannot control. Again, impermanence. <laughs> um, not to mention, you know, we're, we're recovering from four years of absolute terror. We are in the midst of the third age of a rec uh, racial reckoning in the United States where the past refuses to be ignored and the present no longer threatens, but promises to become undone if we do not show up and attend to our karmic debt, which continues to perpetuate boundless suffering. So in short, we're in an age where we are called to practice a form of socially engaged Buddhism that moves beyond um, the mat and takes the skills and insights that we are gaining from our practice to the circumstances and the people who need our cultivated presence now more than ever. But before we can show up presently and fully amidst so much loss and grief, we must intimately know our own grief and we must be prepared to die to ourselves every day to shed the shell of our ego so that we can fully be. And we must be prepared to fully get in touch with our own grief, reconciling the image of who we are in this moment and who we thought we be, would be in order to make space for who we are being called to be to fulfill our role in this present. So that was a lot of theory. Uh, I want to start with an example from my own life <laughs> to express um, what I mean. Uh, so shedding my own ego daily is a struggle because I've got a lot of it. Uh, so the story I'm going to share is specifically related to a barrier that prevented me from dedicating my full being to um, a cause and a situation. And I'm sure it's shown up in a lot of other areas. It just took me um, a moment or took this specific incident for me to see it. Um so yeah, I, I'm sure it had been pre preventing me from being um, bringing my full being to causes and situations and people um, that that required my full being. Um, basically, because what was required of me either caused me to give up something within myself that was entirely self-serving, which is what ego does, um, or to look at parts of myself that I found to be. Um, Difficult to reconcile with the image of who I imagine myself to be, which is another manifestation of, of ego and, and self. And when I'm talking about giving up things that are entirely self-serving, uh, especially if you're in a caregiving role, which a lot of you may be, please don't conflate that with things like self-respect or boundaries. <laughs> Those are things you actually need. Um, and, you know, what I'm talking about are things like, you know, needing to see uh, yourself as a good person or needing to believe that you're powerful because your actions can bring about a specific change. Um, so so that that's totally different from having boundaries or, you know, having um, respect for yourself because I understand that those types of things can really be be tugged on when you're working in an organization trying to serve others, but also organizations are driven by their own, um, I guess, their, their own goals like uh, profit and reputation. So separate, separate things. Um, but anyway, when I first got started as a chaplain, I really wanted to fix things. Um, and I'm sure that doesn't come across as a surprise. I think a lot of people were drawn to healing um, and service professions initially. 
are trying to fix something in others that we hope to to heal for ourselves, which can mean that others inadvertently and non-consensually become objects amidst our, our own healing journey. But um, anyway, this was maybe this incident I'm about to describe was maybe um, my third year as a, as a chaplain. Um, I thought I'd address that particular manifestation of my ego of, of needing to, to fix or wanting to be, um, to be received a certain way. Um, but ego is, is smart <laughs> and it can transform and hide and, you know, sneak up on us, uh, at really inconvenient moments. Um, but there is a, there's a hospice patient I was assigned, um, to visit in a nursing home. And I'm going to call her Miss Genevieve for the purposes of this conversation. And Miss Genevieve was an older white woman with Alzheimer's disease. And when I first saw her name on my census, along with her age and her race and you know, all sorts of things about her background, I was very anxious about showing up at her door as a young Black woman because I feared what type of language and insults and derogatory statements and would slip from her mouth as an 80-something-year-old white woman who no longer had the conscious restraint to know when to hide her bigotry and violence. Um, I had quite a few experiences growing up of simply walking through nursing homes um, to to visit family members, to know the type of terror that could be inflicted. So um, I was bringing my my own stuff to the situation. Um, but I went to visit her because it was my job. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I was called to do. Um, and I was very, I was pleasantly surprised. Me and, um, I had a wonderful relationship with Miss Genevieve. Uh, she trusted me quickly. Um, we quickly developed rapport. Um, and we began um, sharing stories. And she shared intimate details about her um, own life and her experience, one of which um, included being married to an ex-husband who was not kind to her at all. Um, so she eventually left him and fell in love with someone who treated her well for 40 years. And so he died. Um, and we continued to develop a, a wonderful relationship. You know, she often remembered me when I would come visit her weekly, which was, you know, really, really meaningful. Um, yeah, sometimes she wasn't in a great mood, um, especially if, way the doctors were handling her reminded her of when her ex-husband um, wasn't kind to her. Um, there was one week in particular in which Miss Genevieve was having a rough time. So as her health declined, her doctors and nurses were having to resort to more um, physically invasive measures that that seemed to to trigger her and I would come visit her and she would just sob um she would beg for my help um she'd beg me to take her away she would beg me to fix it and it really tugged on my spirit because she felt helpless and as an empath I felt helpless with her um, and there was nothing I could do to, or do <laughs> to, to, you know, fix it. Um, and by do and, and fix, what I mean is there was nothing I could do to completely erase her suffering. Uh, I couldn't whisk her away and save her. I couldn't do 
anything to um, to end her suffering and my vicarious suffering by having to witness her suffering. Um, and, of course, and of course, this touches on the, the four of noble truths um, pertaining to suffering. Um, here I am entering into the situation, not only um, not only feeling anxious and somewhat avoidant of her suffering, but that it was directly connected to my own. So all that said, um, you know, I, I was saying I, I felt powerless to do things or helpless to do things, which is not the same as feeling powerless, but, um, you know, what I was able to, to do and what I did um, was share with the medical team about her previous marriage so that they could take a trauma-informed care approach um, when managing her symptoms. I was able to listen. I was able to bring her books and poetry. Um, I was able to talk with her about her relationship to God. In short, I was able to be fully present. Um, But for a few weeks as it continued, um, as her health continued to decline and she was experiencing um, these painful memories, I had seriously contemplated whether or not I should keep coming back. Um, I found myself trying to talk myself out of being assigned to to the patient. I was telling myself there's nothing I could do, that I was ineffective, that she didn't really need me, that I wasn't enough. And ultimately, not only had I made her suffering about my own fears and limitations, but my inability to sit with my own suffering around my fears and limitations made it such that I was willing to abandon her and amidst her amidst her suffering. And it made it such that I had been so overwhelmed uh, by the reality of suffering, not realizing how I hadn't attended um, to my own suffering and taken a look at my own ego that I was willing to, to walk away because I couldn't single-handedly change an entire situation. Um, and I think this is really important as we're talking about um, the weight of what we're being called to do in this present moment and addressing um, social inequity, um, oppression, and racial tra- uh, trauma, class um, disparities, um, uh, gender um, inequity in the U.S. Like these are large systems that have perpetuated an incredible amount of suffering that one individual. Um, cannot tackle alone, or even if all of us got together to tackle it alone in a single lifetime, it would take many, many lifetimes um, to to heal and redirect that that suffering. And in the midst of showing up to do what we are being called to do, it can feel it can feel like the actions that we are taking in an individual moment simply aren't enough. Um, and you know, if we can't fix it, if we can't resolve it, if we can't see the immediate change, um, then what? Then what's even the point? Um, I don't believe this, but <laughs> these are things that, you know, just looking at my own experience and having worked with people that I see go through people's minds. Um, and I think this happens a lot um, when we talk about what it means to, to end suffering. Um, but are ultimately overwhelmed by the weight of that suffering. Um, and then the desire to end it or to fix it um, pops up um, without us realizing that 
that is that desire, those desires are often born out of an avoidance of suffering and an abundance of ego. Um, so I had to come to grieve my own loss of um, control when sitting with a, a patient who felt helpless um, in order to be present enough myself to um, alleviate their suffering, specifically Miss Genevieve's suffering, um, which is what we as bodhisattvas are called to do. Um, I had to come to grieve the death of my identity as a problem solver, as a fixer, so that I could show up every day and give Miss Genevieve and my other patients the type of presence they deserved and needed. And I ultimately had to let go of my desire to be seen as a quote unquote good person so that I could truly lean into compassion and support my patients in um, times of need. Um, all of that said, um, as I wrap up, I would like to invite each of you um, and all of us to think about what it is we as individuals need to grieve and collectively as a Sangha and as society, what death must we personally accept within ourselves and mourn in order to show up fully today for who we are called to be in our jobs, um, for our country, um, and, and for our loved ones in order to bring about the um, possibility and the future that, that we hope to see. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brisha. Uh, so uh, we have time for discussion, uh, for questions or responses to Brisha or for uh, your own reflections on uh, uh, overcoming or letting go of ego and, and uh, how to be present and helpful when we can't necessarily fix anything or whatever it is we want to, we think we want to fix. So um, let's open this up for discussion. Uh, Xingyu, uh, uh, maybe you can help me. If anyone uh, who, who's visible has uh, would like to respond or ask a question, please do that. Uh, some of you, There's a couple of screens and some of you aren't visible. So if you go to the participant window, uh, at the bottom of that, you can raise your hand. Uh, and um, uh, I see Dylan is, uh, has raised his hand, so I'll call on Dylan Torpov to start. Thank you, Dylan. Hey, Bri oh. oh, okay, I'm unmuted. Hi, Brisha. Hey. Good to see you. You too. Okay, so I've got a couple different thoughts, and I'm trying to form it into a question, but they're, 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 I think they're deep ones. So, um, the, so I'm, I, I'm also, you know, I mean, a lot of us are folks who in that are in Buddhist practice, like folks that are, um, in, you know, consensus, a pretty deep well of compassion and have this, this drive to use it for, for, you know, uh, some sort of helpful means, you know, to make a difference or something. Um, and, uh, I think what I'm, so I just had the experience of being with a lot of family members after uh, sort of the head of our family had, had just died, our, our, my grandma. And it's, uh, 
um, what was, what I realized going into that experience was like that I, I made the trip to Massachusetts to be with my family who I don't see that often, but that like, I couldn't fix the grief that we were going through. Like I couldn't, I couldn't like part of me wants to be able to say the thing that's going to make us feel at peace with it, you know, and like, or do the thing that's going to do that. And, uh, and, but a deeper part of me knew that that wasn't possible and that I couldn't, that the, the biggest help I could really give was to just basically be with, you know, my mom, like, even if I wasn't like, I would offer occasionally like, Hey, do you want to talk about grandma or something? But most of the time it was just watching groundhog day with her and just like, there wasn't any like proactive. Um, I just kind of accepted that that was, that was the most effective form of love I could show was just being, being around, being present, you know, and like not trying to fix it proactively all the time, but that could actually exacerbate it. Um, so I guess I'm connecting that with this, this question about ending suffering, um, that there's, a um, that that's the aspiration of the practice, but that, um, I guess, how, how do you, how, how, how have you, or can you share some thoughts on the, I don't want to call it the resignation, but like the sort of acceptance that in my life, in our lives, like I'm not going to be able to do the things that are going to heal everything that's wrong with this country or even heal, you know, a passing of, of someone who's really loved, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So how to manage, like not trying to not, not trying too hard versus um, still being proactive about um, facing suffering and trying to transform it into something positive. Like, I think that's the space where I'm trying to navigate now of like, I, and I hope this is making sense of like, not trying to go into a situation of hurt or trauma to try to fix it. Um, either if that's in a sociopolitical sense or in a personal sense or both. Um, but also um, trying to uh, still be present. I know there's a simpler way to ask that question, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think? Thank you for the question. And um, thank you for sharing about your, your grandmother. And um, I don't like saying I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> that doesn't quite cut it. But um, yeah, uh, thank you for inviting us into that moment with you. Um, a few things come to mind for me. Um, I think you're right in that you know, the, the aspiration seems like, you know, we're called to end suffering, but that's not possible as long as we live or in long, as long as we breathe, we're going to suffer. Um, and for me, I, I feel more called to alleviate suffering at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I hear, I heard in part of your question, um, I think you use the term aspiration. And then I, I think about, 
um, the three doors of liberation, one of which is uh, no goal or aimlessness. And that is something I've really toyed with and, and tried to make sense of um, in the practice of being present enough to alleviate suffering. Um, and I don't have any answers <laughs> for that. Still, still mulling over that one. But um, I think, you know, both in, in personal circumstances, um, and this is especially sh- uh, true for socio-political uh, c- uh, circumstances, we have to be comfortable enough with our own death. And I mean that across the board, death of ego, um, death of expectations, um, loss of self, um, and, and loss of self and, and loss of identity um, in terms of what we imagine ourselves capable of doing and who we imagine um, ourselves to be. Um, and acceptance of failure, um, which is its own form of death, you know, with a little d. Uh, we really have to come to terms with those things in order to give ourselves fully over to the process of alleviating suffering so that we can fully stand um, and be present with those who are suffering um, without having our own fear and grief, you know, our fear of inadequacy, whatever it might be, um, cause us to, um, I guess, uh, abandon those who um, who need us. And I think part of that that grief and, and loss and, and the death of expectations is also realizing that the suffering will continue. Um, and yet we still need to keep showing up. You know, we still need to continue to do our part and play our role, even if it can or will, um, you know, lead to result in or ultimately fall short of our expectations or what we hope for. You know, we still have to show up anyway um, because that is what we are called to do. You know, you can't stop your grandmother or your loved ones from dying, but you show up anyway um, because that's what you are are called to do as an act of love and an act of presence. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Prisha and Dylan. Uh, other responses, comments, questions, reflections for Prisha or for all of us? Oh, yes, Paul Disco. Um, uh, thank you very much. Um, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, Marvelous, marvelous grasp of the of the of the Dharma. I I, I, I was and the clarity and and uh, and 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 ease with which you spoke of it was quite quite impressive. I was very 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 taken with it. But as as someone that was involved with the hospice program back in the early the mid seventies, especially at San Francisco Zen Center where where we where uh, Zen Hospice was started uh, several years later. Um, we were assigned by our teacher to sit with the dying, as as we various that's especially at Green Gulch Farm, we would have various different notorieties come and die with us, um, because of the, it was the teacher's 
part of the teacher's stick. It was anyway, uh, but so, but we were assigned to sit in with them as they were dying, and the emphasis was not on helping them, but it was on coming to terms with death ourselves by being in a proximity to it. Um, so that a little different emphasis there, I, that it seems to be that was the beginning concept was not not for it was for the you were you were you were receiving something from the dying person, not that you were giving the dying person something, um, and that seemed to be very fitting and very appropriate. And I think it was a mutual relationship, of course. Um, and I love the way you brought us up to the break of the question. And then let us sit there without <laughs> without giving us the answer. It was quite uh, quite skillful of you. But anyway, thank you very much. And I just it's interested in, in that which comes which which is the which is the focus from the, from the dying person to the to the to the participant or from the participant to the dying person. I think it's both and. Um, I think. It- Everything you said was spot on, resonated fully. Um, yeah. Um, I, it reminds me of, um, Thich Nhat Hanh said something about emptiness. Uh, and I wish I had the, the quote in front of me. Um, but yeah, we, I feel that we are called to sit with our own death. Um, and and sitting with our own death, coming to terms with our own death and our own relationship to grief, we inadvertently um, offer a gift to others who have not had that opportunity. Um, so I, I see it coming full circle and the way you described your experience and stated it um, is quite poignant and spot on. So thank you. Thank you. Other comments or responses or uh, reflections? Uh, I think um, Jokai has. Jokai? No. Uh, who? Uh, I saw David raise hand up. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Brian. So maybe David, uh, go first, then Brian. Thank you so much, Brisha, for that talk. Um, among other things, it takes me back to the time of caring for my mother when she was dying. Um, after she had kept her breast cancer a secret from the from the world for 17, or from me anyway, for 17 years. Um, and that feeling of, of not, that feeling of wanting to fix it, wanting to find the thing that I could do to make it, to make it be okay, and discovering that there were things I could do. There were things that I could do for her every day, you know, just, just go and be with her and bring her whatever she wanted that day. Um, but there, uh, there, there are a couple of things that, that uh, sort of phrases that you used in, in your talk where I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. And one is uh, death of the ego. And the other one is turning loose of, of the, the, the picture of being a good person. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you, like what death of ego means for you. Do, do you think, is it, is it an ongoing process? Is it something that happens every day? Is it like the little prince sweeping out his volcanoes every morning? Or, or, or does it feel like, no, that there can actually be sort of, you know, thresholds for where, 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 where you pass through a certain death of the ego and there's, there's no going back. And then in terms of, 
turning loose of being a good person? Are you thinking more in terms of, you know, turning loose of being a nice person? Or is the good person more the sort of, you know, the, the, the get it done, being the, being the can-do person who does all that thing that you're saying, you know, saves money for a rainy day and, and checks all the boxes? Thank you for your question, David. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, yeah, those are awesome questions. Um, I'm going to start with the good person just because that's top of mind and I'm going to work my way back. Um, because I, I actually see being a good person um, is very much attached to or linked to ego. I see it as a byproduct of ego. Um, and when I think about being a good person, um, I think about how that is indirect conflict with or contrast to, to non-duality. Um, because when the focus is on being a certain type of person as opposed to simply being, um, and being attentive to what can arise in a given moment, which can be a variety of things. Um, some of them good, <laughs> some of them not good. I'm thinking of anger in particular and what the Dharma um, or what many teachers have said about anger and whether whether or not, I mean, I guess it depends on a person. If you think that um, anger is good or bad uh, or what have you. Um, but I, I've personally found in my, my personal life and in my own work that when I am focused or aspiring to to be good or to to do good. Um, it doesn't. It makes it more difficult for me to sit with um, and to um, come into contact with uh, the present, attentive to my own shadow side, um, and how that inadvertently works its way into um, the work that I'm doing, simply because I'm human. And if I am, you know, leaning into dualism and, and focusing on one side, um, the good, um, which I feel is a result of my ego, um, then there, there's so much more that I'm just closing myself off to um, experiencing. And that, of course, impacts my work. Um, or I, don't, I, I can't think of a better term than work off the top of my head, but, you know, it, it seeps into my actions. Um, and that relates back to, to ego for me, um, ego and the idea of self, because the idea, um, I want to be, to desire to be a good person or to desire to be seen as a good person, to desire to be good, um, has a lot to do with, with self and ego. And when I think about the, the death of ego, um, it's a, it's a constant practice, a daily thing. Um, I mean, who knows, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, I'll be able to provide a different answer because I've reached a certain threshold. But um, over the past 10 years of, of practicing and sitting, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, for me, ebbs and flows. And, you know, there's certain, my relationship to um, certain manifestations of ego, um, may become more enlightened or I'm, I'm more aware. Um, and then with time, I can see that, you know, that that same source of ego is just sneaking more subtly <laughs> into, into um, other aspects of uh, my being. So um, I have to be constantly vigilant and on the lookout. Thank you, Prisha. Uh, Brian Taylor, uh, hand up next. 
Um, yes, thank you so much. Uh, this talk has been uh, very helpful, a great conversation too, around some of these subtle aspects of uh, ego. I, I was struck for the first time really um, in the conversation, maybe it was partly Paul Disco's comment, um, about the um, similarity between um, being present in grief, a grief situation with someone else, um, and also being present to people in a different socioeconomic cultural setting. Um, often, you know, sometimes when I've you know been in other countries or I've talked to people who have been trying to do some good in the world, right, in a different setting, especially with people who are in poverty or, or in a very different circumstance and we're coming from a, a, a privileged situation, that it's so important to go in with a sense of listening and what can I learn rather than uh, what can I bring from my superior position, you know, to them and, and help fix them and, and feel good about myself that way. And I, and I for the first time, I really heard um, a similarity between that and uh, being in a grieving situation. I've been around a lot of grief and loss. And, and um, I think sometimes it's tempting for the ego to want to go into that and help, you know, and to, and to not so much be a good person, but, or, or in addition to being a good person, part of that is I want to be a helpful person. And so we go in thinking that we have some, we've dealt with our own grief, we've dealt with our own facing death, and so we're in a, now in a position to help this other person. The fact is we don't, we don't know what it's like for them at all. And, and I, I've never died, and so I can't tell what it's like to really face my own physical death. Um, and uh, I don't even know what it's like to face the death of a spouse or of, you know, someone, I mean, it, there's, circumstances are so different from everybody that it's, it, it may be best to go in with um, what can I learn? Uh, how can I be present to you? And what can you teach me? Not from a self-centered point of view, but I want to listen. And, and in some ways, that's maybe a gift uh, to them. It turns out being a gift rather than I'm bringing something to you. I wondered if you could address that a little bit in, in terms of your experience. Thank you for that question. Um, I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> um, I, um, yeah, it does remind me of, um, I, yes, uh, was it Paul's question? Is it David's? Um, someone's question. <laughs> A couple of questions ago. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of much more to add because I thought you you said it quite poignantly. Um, what I would add, what kind of, you said, what can I learn? And I'm also thinking of um, how can I be? Um, and for me, that is consistently um, the practice every time, you know, whether I'm showing up at work, you know, at a startup um, or, you know, whether I'm showing up for a class um, to teach in the evenings or I'm, physically or actually sitting with someone who is dying. Um, how can I be, who or what does this situation call me to be? Um, is, and, and then what, what I learn um, for me, I've been working on making 
not even making that a priority, um, but I guess that can just be a byproduct <laughs> um, because for a while I, I was focusing on um, what I could learn. And for me personally, it made the, it made the relationship seem somewhat transactional. Um, so, so yeah, where I am right now is um, who can I be? What, like, how, how am I called to be right now? Um, and that just, shifts and changes depending on the type of transition someone is going through. Um, of course, that looks different if I'm with someone who is physically dying versus if I'm in a startup that's afraid, afraid it's about to fail this week. <laughs> Last week, we were on the top of the world, right? Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Thank you, Bisha. We have a few hands up, but I'm going to take the liberty of calling on Gary Wilson, who's uh, been a chaplain for a long time and actually trained chaplains. And Gary, I just wondered if you might, if you might have some reflection or response or just something, some comment on uh, all that Brisha is uh, giving us. Uh, so it's good to see you, Gary. Please go ahead. Oh, thanks, Tygen. Uh Thank you, Brisha. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a friend, a friend in the work as well. Um, I, I think I, I, I just what I've sat with is your courage, um, your your courage, and just really uh, being and attending um, both to yourself and to the the patient. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard to keep showing up day in and day out. Um, and I think you've also left me just with some good questions that I'm sitting with right now of what's wanting what's wanting to die in me today. Mm. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of what I've been been just sitting with as you've been talking. Um, so I don't, I don't really have anything anything particular. Um, I appreciate your wisdom um, in the way that you're you're presenting it. Um, I think it was Paul too that said just the clarity of your of your voice. Um, um, it's uh, it's just good to hear someone um, talk about the work on a, on a non-work day. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for what you've done and for clearly, um, taking risks and, um, uh, just expanding yourself to, to go and, and do new things. I think even, even that, as I listen to you is, um, sort of a challenge for my identity of who I know myself to be professionally, um, that, to, to not, um, to continue to take risks and expand myself. So that's what I'm sitting with here today. So thank you for your talk. Thank you, Tygen, for uh, inviting me into the conversation and just nice to be here. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Brisha. I was actually going to say it's nice to finally meet you virtually, Gary. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, Thank you for your reflection and um thank you for your presence good work you do thank you both um so we have set several hands up uh, i'll try try and get to everybody i think we have time uh Xing Yu, you had something uh actually i think joe kai and eve was before before me and they uh well uh, go, I, I go ahead anyway Okay, I'll just go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah, you're first. 
No, nothing, nothing substantial adding to anybody else's statement. I just absolutely love your love your talk. I'm currently experiencing a process, uh, the process of dying. My family, my grandfather is in quite terrible health, and uh, we have no idea. And he's in China, and uh, so it's been pretty tough for me personally. And um, <sighs> Just um, appreciating your sharing about how hard it is to be present to what is going on, and um, I find that it takes courage to show up to um, meetings with him and. Um, And um, and also just uh, find it interesting that sometimes uh, the apparently the person who is experiencing dying is not me, but uh, um, meanwhile there could be this strong wish to be um, or we can sometimes make a big fuss about ourselves in fact, during the dying and um, process. Um, okay, I, I guess I'm quite lost with my statement now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your feelings. Brisha, any response? Um, thank you for sharing that. And for allowing us as a community to support you in any way that we can. And um, I don't, what I have to share is um, that I hear you and um, I heart is with you and your family um, and uh, it's difficult what you're going through and I see your courage as you move through it and you're choosing to be present to your own grief and uh, to be there with your family Thank you. I think uh, Eve Pinsker is next Eve So I, I, I find myself wondering about the the contrast between the, the, the Judeo-Christian idea of the Messiah and the Bodhisattva. Um, when I was when I was, you know, very young, I mean I remember thinking about um, the Messiah and finding that like really compelling, the idea that uh, you know, the way I interpreted it then that somebody could come and end war um, and end conflict and, 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 you know, but of course there is a lot of ego in that and ideas about control. And um, I, um, I attended both my parents through the end of their lives and I was present with both of them when they died. 
And my mother in particular was sort of in to control herself. And, um, I, um, and one of the things that, that I struggled with was what I could control and what I couldn't. And I read Stephen Levine's book on Kuan Yin coming from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and, and the figure of Kuan Yin and being able to dwell on, being able to draw on a deep well of compassion. I mean, that I found that helpful. And I went through, um, so there were some members of one of the other sangas that, that, that I connect with. And they went through Joan Halifax's gracing and came back and did it with us. And that I found that really helpful. And one of the things that it helped me to do was was to to connect with that, you know, to, to connect with a more emotional experience of compassion and, and, and connection and and to let go, I think think in retrospect anyway of some of the the ideas around like fixing that go with a more uh you know messianic complex um but one of the things I did struggle with with my mother sometimes was frankly sometimes it was scary how much I could control um I um she I mean her, her I worked with her doctor and and he said I she probably did live longer because of me and her quality of life and in her last year was probably better because some of the things I did, but um but of course, you know, there was that was tiny compared to what I I couldn't control and um I've worked with family practice physicians and I work in public health and so I work with people that you know, I think often do have a, a, a messianic complex that they want to fix things. And I know I talked about that to the physicians I, I work with. Um, and, and as a social scientist, um, you know, I mean, I want to fix the world. So um, that anyway, yeah, like I said, I, I've been wondering about, um, yeah, well, anyway, the difference between being a messiah and being a bodhisattva. Thank you. Uh, I love that question. <laughs> so, uh, it really, yeah, it, it, it makes me think. I grew up Southern Baptist um, and then started studying when I was in my early 20s. Um, and now I have a book coming out about being Buddhist and my Southern Baptist grandmother and family are very upset <laughs> because they didn't realize uh, I was Buddhist for a good reason. <laughs> and um, I had a hard enough time explaining that I've married a Jewish woman um, because my, my family, my grandmother in particular, genuinely does not get not Jesus. So <laughs> like explaining Judaism to her, you know, the absence of Jesus was just not cooking. But um I, as I was hearing your question, what came to mind about the difference between, um, you know, the Dharma and Buddhism and um, 
that's a messianic approach is that you know, the Messiah is always coming. There's a promise that the Messiah will come and do X, Y, and Z thing, um, but that isn't actualized yet. You know, it's always in the future. It's always tomorrow. Whereas with our practice um, and, the, and the Dharma, it, it's here now. And that's, that's, the, that's the point and that's the purpose. It is here right now. It is capable of um, alleviating and transforming suffering in the present moment. Um, and it is within us to do that, not within some supernatural, natural beings, um, will. Um, and when that responsibility is placed back onto us, um, instead of some other being so far removed from us that, you know, they can't possibly be fully in the world right now. It's just, um, it transforms our relationship to accountability um, and how how we need to show up um, to bring about um, or to influence um, the change we want to see. Thank you, Prisha. Uh, next, I want to call on uh, David Weiner, who is uh, working, practicing as a chaplain also. Uh, David, uh, please. Good to see you again, Prisha. Prisha <laughs> and I were both at Upaya studying. Uh, I dropped out after a year. <laughs> I know Grisha was continuing. Um, and I just want to bring up one thought and, and, and see and share it with you and get your reflections on it because um, I find it easy to be with the people who are dying because it's a matter of just being there and being with them. And I could kind of let go of myself and it's just being present or like Joan was always saying, Joan Halifax always saying, bearing witness, you know, just to be there. Um, Where I have a harder time is with the people who survive, the family that is left behind. And that's where I feel the, the urge to fix, the urge to somehow alleviate their pain um, that that suffering I, I have a much harder time with than that with the suffering of the people who are actually dying. And I wanted to get your take on that. And if you've experienced the same thing or if you have thoughts on that that you could share with me, I'd appreciate it. Hey, David, it is wonderful to see you again as well. Um. Ooh, well, <laughs> um, thank you for that question. So, I I do empathize. Um, yeah, I I do empathize with um, that sentiment. Um, I 
think I'm thinking for myself, part of what makes it so difficult or has made it difficult at times really depends on the family um, and, and what's happening um, is being seeing the possibility of myself in certain situations uh, with the living. Um, and a lot of times that that difficulty that I'm experiencing and, and supporting them um, has to do with my own discomfort and, and you know the well of grief that I the depths of my own grief that I've yet to be able to explore um, as thoroughly or as fully as I'd like. Um, because it doesn't happen with, with every family. Um, and it, I would say it, I have that feeling less with, with time. Um, but when it does happen, it's almost certainly related to um, something that I... You know, I'm still working through in terms of my own relationship to um, to loss, and I'm not anticipating that ever being completely done. <laughs> so I just um, I just expect it to be an ongoing process. Thank you for sharing your experience and inviting us into um, your own vulnerability. So we thank you, thank you, Prisha, so much for all of your responses and for all of the comments and questions and discussions so far. Uh, we have a little more time. If uh, anyone else would like to respond or comment or ask Prisha a question, yes, uh, Jokai. Hi. Good morning, Prisha. Um, do you find your experiences in chaplaincy working with death and grief? Uh, support your life in any way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I feel it's transformed my life. Um, I'm not going to say for the better, but I, I'm grateful for being able to do this work, for being able to practice, for being able to be in community with other people who are doing this work. Um, because... You know, as our um, evening gotha says, you know, time uh, passes swiftly <laughs> uh, and, and time is a most precious resource. Um, and I feel that this practice contributes to my awakening and then the it, it which then contributes to the awakening of the of people I'm interacting with um, for various um, causes um, and my let's say goal <laughs> is uh, to uh, support as many people as possible um, in leaning into that and um, yeah coming in contact with their own relationship to grief and death so that uh, they can build a life full of meaning and purpose so Thank you. Prisha, if I may, uh, I just want to again recommend your book to everyone very strongly. It's just a powerful, wonderful book, Grieving While Black. Prisha, I I, I've appreciated everything you've said about, and all the comments about 
chaplain work and work and being with dying and the levels of that small d dying. I wonder if you could say something because your book is just so impressive about the particular struggles around this for women, for LGBT people and for black people. And I don't know uh, that that's huge. It's a huge question, but uh, I wonder if you might say something about any of that. Thank you, Tegan. Um, yeah, so in inviting each of us to lean into our own relationship to grief and fear of impermanence um, and to explore um, death of our ego so that we can show up for who you know, the present moment is calling us to be, um, I find that that is crucial work um, for to do in order to show up fully um, for racial justice, for um, gender justice, for um, LGBTQ communities, um, because what these communities are facing um, very literally is death. And um, even if we're not talking about, you know, the death at, um, you know, the barrel of a gun for Black folks or um, the death that um, women and LGBTQ people are, are facing, there's so many other types of death leading up to the larger threats of death um, that are being navigated on a day-to-day basis and so many other types of grief, whether it's, um, you know, being a woman and having, um, you know, being paid less as a result of one's gender, thus having less um, economic resources and influence and thus um, having, you know, having money impacts one's ability to access um, healthcare and, and food and housing, all the downstream effects of, of grief um, and coming into contact um, with death is very prevalent um, depending on a person's social identity. Um, with being Black, um, you know, uh, I know that a lot of the conversation now is specifically around police violence, but there's so many other forms of, of violences and, and grief um, that we experience on a day-to-day basis, whether it's, you know, being Grisha and having a resume passed up, which impacts my income and my life. And, um, and anytime anything is, you know, touches on um, someone's ability to, to live safely in the present moment, it touches on grief and death. Um, you know, to, for people to be able to alleviate that suffering, specifically uh, white folks, men, straight people, um, not only do you have to have a, not comfort, but ability to sit with profound grief without running, um, you, you have to have a, a comfort um, with death. And when I'm inviting folks to explore death of ego in these situations, um, you also have to be present of how your own shadow sides um, impact the way that you're able to be present uh, for these communities and and for these people. Um, I hope that answers your question as succinctly as possible, Tigan. Well, thank you for addressing that. Um, uh, again, uh, uh, Brisha's book gives many personal stories and anecdotes about her experience around all of this. Um, 
and and the oppression and also extra um, possibilities, potentials for grief for black people, for women generally, for LGBTQ people. Um, I wonder if if anybody has any follow-up questions about any of that. Um, Again, we have a little bit of time. Or just responses, comments. I think I think this is a, a profound question for our society, um, and you know, in terms of the racial systemic uh, racism in, in our society, this is, of course, four hundred years worth of karma, and and it's in the last year become more, maybe more obvious. I don't know, uh, but it's not it's not new. Um, so, you know, in terms of not being able to fix things, uh, how do we, you know, so a follow-up question, Brisha. How do we, um, and since our sangha, uh, just to say this, is predominantly white, uh, how can we be helpful in facing this huge karmic uh, legacy in, in our society, in our country? Uh, how can we be Allies, if that's if that's possible, uh, I, I just I I, um, I really appreciate your wisdom and everything you've said, and just any comments you have for us on that would be appreciated. I think. Um, I would I invite people to continue doing the work um, that I alluded to today um, because that will facilitate your ability to show up for these movements because frequently what I see is um, you know white people uh, men whoever uh, straight people like whatever the cause is who aren't facing um, the grief and the threat on a daily basis so when they show up for these movements they are um, quickly overwhelmed by the grief that like black folks um, women queer folks have to experience every day. And it's just a part of our lived experience with without option. Um, and, and, you know, folks enter into the space with the intention and the desire to do well, to fix and to help and quickly become overwhelmed and burn out. Um, and then they leave and they abandon, which causes more harm than just not <laughs> being there to begin with. Um, and what I challenge people to do is to work through your own relationship to grief and loss, then show up to these communities and be present anyway, to be present and keep showing up and keep doing the work regardless of the outcome. Do the work and know that while you can influence the system and while you can um, contribute by making subtle changes, you will not overthrow white supremacy by the end of your lifetime. You know, you're not going to end thousands of years of gender inequity in like two months and a few Facebook posts. Like this is, this is a long-term, this is a long game. Um, and you show up anyway. You know, you show up despite the reality of, of failure. You show up despite your limitations. You show up despite your fear, um, despite 
um, not despite, but because of your grief. You know, you you take the grief that you are feeling, and you can you you, ch- you channel that um, to inspire you to be present and be connected. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's what I encourage people to do. Um, I mean, I'm thinking through the whole book in a, a chapter in particular. I'm like, how do I just make that succinct? <laughs> um, but that is um, my succinct way of saying, um, you know, do your own work and you keep showing up anyway um, and accept the reality of a failure and the reality of your own limitations. Thank you so much, Prisha, for that response. Um, yeah, uh, the grief of not being in control <laughs> is, is, you know, one of the deaths that you spoke of. And so I really appreciate everything you've said and given to us today. Um, if there's any last comment or question or response, we have a little bit of time. Uh, If not, um, okay. Uh, Again, thank you so much, Brisha, for all that you have given us uh, in in your being here today. Uh, We will close with um, uh, the Metta Sutta, and uh, then there'll be time for announcements. And then after that, we uh, just hang out in the Zoom space for anyone who can stay uh, and informally just hang out together and maybe uh, if Bruce can stay, we can uh, talk a little further, but uh, we'll do the chanting now. Shinya, please.